0: Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest.
1: Welcome, on adventures,
0: and we're back!
1: With Dr. Walter Greenleaf, a neuroscientist and medical technology developer working at Stanford University. He has over three decades of research and development experience. Walter is considered the leading authority in the fields of digital medicine and medical virtual reality technology. He is a distinguished visiting scholar at Stanford University's Virtual Interaction Labs, uh, including many, many, many other things. Uh, He also sits on the board for early-stage medical product companies, accelerators, incubators, and so on, and without any further delay, and hopefully with no audio issues, I'd like to bring in Walter.
0: Hi, Dylan. It's good to be back with you. Good to see you. I know.
1: It's been so long. It's been so long since I've seen you. I'm so glad to see you. Thank you so much for making this happen. Uh, In full disclosure, we had some audio issues. We cut the last one probably gonna lit it on fire and throw it off the edge of a mountain, Uh, but we're starting fresh with this one. So uh, I appreciate your patience and uh, working with me to troubleshoot uh, through all of this. My Uh, pleasure. And by the way, very tried and true in terms of, uh, it it shows that that you've been seasoned in the technical space where you're like, okay, let's troubleshoot this now. And you very patiently and very kindly walk through the processes as you know, uh, demos and VR technology all of this cutting edge technology usually is the is grounds for something breaking or being destroyed. Uh, do you want to talk to me about your experiences with demos and other technologies not going the way you expected and how you've had to possibly pivot and improvise
0: improvise? Oh. Well, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, especially with uh, emerging technologies. Uh, you you just need to know that even though you often will have a receptive audience of early adopters who are excited to have you there, that, you know, there's going to be port problems, there's going to be technology crashes, there's going to be bugs. Uh, that's sort of the dues you pay to have something that's next generation. And uh, you just have to roll with it. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, I'm sure almost everyone here has had their frustrations with technology.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, it, bleeding edge definitely makes you bleed, so you uh, you feel it for sure. And uh, yeah, this is going out to uh, uh, groups of um, developers they like. So if they have any any questions or comments, feel free to throw them through the chat bar, and we'll try to answer them if they if they pop up. Um, so. Last we were, we were talking, and I'd like to talk a little bit about this. We're talking about using virtual reality uh, for transformative change for, for mental wellness and the, and the like, um, examples in that area. I'd love to talk to you about long lasting change. Can we, can we revisit this topic, uh, about, uh, virtual reality and, and showing it, that it, it doesn't just work in the moment, but how it can have long lasting, um, psychological or emotional, um, possibly spiritual, uh, benefits, uh, long lasting.
0: Well, uh, uh, I'll start out with describing the basic neuroscience principles um, behind why uh, virtual environments, immersive environments are so powerful for the purposes that we're using them for and uh, uh, how we can design systems to leverage um, th- that effect. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot going on. Um, if you want to change a brain system uh, it's basically learning you know we we learn based on our experiences and those experiences that have a higher emotional valence uh, either they're very scary or very wonderful and pleasurable are more likely to be recalled and incorporated into what we're doing Uh, what's wonderful about virtual reality technology is that we can use them to evoke an experience. Um, yeah, you, you probably have read my colleague, Jeremy Balenson's book, uh, Experience on Demand. And we can use virtual environments to, because they're so engaging, uh, because we involve, uh, uh, not just involve our sensory systems, but we have people actively engage in these virtual environments. Uh, they create a, a, a very immersive state and we can use that to help people manage their, learn to manage their emotions, manage their anxieties, their, their mood states, uh, uh, their fears, uh, to manage their pain, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can also use this uh, for uh, learning skills. Uh, you know, it's not just in the clinical arena, but in other arenas. There's a learning of psychomotor skills, uh, how to react to a given situation, which, because we can simulate experiences, we can have people be prepared. Um, one thing that mm-hmm. we've done at the Stanford Children's Hospital is create uh, an experience where we basically do stress inoculation. We have uh, children who are scheduled in advance for a very perhaps scary procedure where they're very worried, their parents are worried, their friends are worried about it. We can have them do a walkthrough starting in the parking lot, go to um, the check-in desk, uh, get a tour, meet the clinicians, and learn uh what's going to happen in advance have someone guide them through it who's been through it before and this produces the uh, anticipatory anxiety so it's uh, virtual environments are a very powerful way to couple a story behind the experiences too instead of Mm -hmm. just having it be something that happens to you you can have a narrative arc and story is a very powerful way for People to feel connected to an experience, uh, the hero's journey, as, as you would as you would say, mm-hmm. and we can build that into our healthcare system. Healthcare is difficult, and if we allow people to be part of their own healthcare quest to have some agency, it we get better results. So there's many ways that um, virtual environments uh, can be used to shift attitudes, to shift behavior, to teach uh, skills, such as learning how to say no to peer pressure when you are trying to cut back on your use of alcohol and you need to practice saying no to friends uh, or to manage your cravings. Hmm. I, I can give other examples, but yeah. those are the basic principles.
1: Those are great. And, um, and you're right. And, uh, uh applying the, as you talk, the narrative stories to, to the, the person's lives and being able to recreate them is, is very powerful, especially it's, it's there's, it's easier said than done. He's like, Oh, I want to lose weight, diet and exercise. No problem. I'm depressed. Just be happy. It's like, yes but but in order to actually unpack that and be able to actually reassemble that to change someone's narrative belief patterns to change their core beliefs into something else is is it's like you it's like to see the mountaintop but then to actually climb it is two very very different experiences as you're going along uh, along along the journey um, what are, what are some typical, um, uns- unexpected roadblocks that let's just say there's young and up and coming, uh, startups that want to get into space and you're like, it's just super easy. I'm just going to have them do this and they'll, and then the world's going to be better. Uh, what are you, what are some unforeseen things do you, do you think are challenges that, that may arise for people that are on this mission to create some sort of, um, uh, meant, uh, uh, could be a, uh, mental health VR product, or it could be another, uh, health uh, VR product that's out there. What are some unforeseen roadblocks is that, that might stop them in their tracks?
0: Easy question, but I also want to make a, uh, a, a bookmark. I want to come back to the, to the question of the power of VR for uh, changing attitudes, too, because there's one more method that we should discuss. But sure. let, let's talk about some of the barriers and roadblocks to uh, developing uh, products for health and wellness or clinical care. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I often see is people coming from the gaming arena or from the tech arena or from the clinical arena Uh, building something and if they're savvy they'll bring in colleagues from the the related disciplines they'll bring in uh, if they're very good at game design they'll bring in people who are experts at uh, uh, the healthcare uh, uh, issue they're addressing so often very great teams get put together the challenge though is often they're not researching the effect of what they're developing on the healthcare ecosystem a clinical environment is very highly evolved. There's a, a need for efficiency. There's it's an ex, it's often very expensive. There's long waiting lists to get in to see a doctor or or an adjunct health professional, and it so the systems aren't easily prepared per, perturbed by introducing new technology, even if it has better creates better results, um, is really amazing in terms of what it does. Uh, if, if it takes extra time, if it adds an extra hour to the day of the clinicians, if it means more paperwork, if somebody has to worry about uh, charging the batteries, uh, uh, and that's often the neglected part is understanding the effect of the new technology onto the healthcare ecosystem. How does it connect to, uh, to the IT infrastructure? How do we protect the uh, patient's uh, security and privacy? Uh, how does it affect uh, the revenue of, of, the, of the, the clinic? Uh, does it mean more paperwork? So mm-hmm. that's the part that I think is often uh, missed because it's not nearly as exciting as designing a new uh, intervention. Um, but even if you have something that you can prove improves healthcare care, it's not enough. You have to say show that it pr- improves healthcare care and doesn't unduly perturb the system. Uh, of, of the clinical environment. Mm. I, I think the other thing that people don't often appreciate, unless they come from the academic research arena, is the importance of being able to demonstrate that what you've built is effective. Um, uh, most of what we're doing in the VR environments for healthcare is is, is safe. We, we're not putting things under the skin or we're not swallowing them, but are they effective? And are they effective to justify the extra hassle or cost of putting in a new piece of technology so that's often something that many of the experts that are developing early stage products uh aren't aware of how important that is and, and how to go about doing it um mm. those are the major roadblocks i would say that's um, great
1: so a couple of things you're talking about there that's really it's true i mean one is just it's human behavior you could you could have the the greatest thing in the world but there's massive friction to use it no one's gonna use it especially super busy time pressure people that are eating their lunch while standing up like there's it's not it's not gonna really aids so looking at how do i reduce the friction of my product how do i reduce the time how do i save on paperwork and effort for uh, the clinicians and the people that have to administrate um that's a, that's a really good point and then the other one is how is it effective um especially in this really difficult hard skills the reason why I, so if you look at and you know this, if you look at the arch of of getting into any type of space, um, these spaces, uh, first ones are the hard skills because they're easy to measure. How do I make a forklift moving up and down? I move a forklift up and down. It goes up and down. Hard skills. The challenge you come across is showing that these soft skill implementations, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the I feel more confident. I feel happier. I feel stronger. I feel less depressed. Those are all those anomalous like like hard to measure kind of areas because it's easy to show that if you show someone how to do surgery inside VR and they do it inside there it's better cheaper faster quicker but what you're talking about is is showing the efficacy of the impact of using the soft skilled systems that's my guess correct me if I'm wrong and if that's the case how do you show that something's effective um, in that with um, um, uh, to, to the point that would actually Uh, get someone actually interested in the product. Uh,
0: You're absolutely right. And um, the other uh, challenge is that so much of what we're doing in many areas of medicine is based on subjective measurements um, that are uh, very noisy um, and very subjective. Uh, Self-report of how, how did you feel last week versus how do you feel today or after using our VR system or... Uh, and people are often very hard at re- reflecting back. We, we have questionnaires that we can ask people. Mm. But you know what's great about virtual environments is that we can start coming up with some objective measurements of behavior. We can create a library of culturally diverse, age-appropriate challenges. Let's call them quests just for the sake of uh, the discussion. Thank and you. we can challenge people um, and see how they behave. See, and also we can capture, because we're instrumenting them, We can see their gaze direction, their eye direction. We can measure their heart rate and respiratory rate. Uh, We can see how calmly or jerkily they might move. So the objective measurements of behavior in a virtual environment combined with some of the biosignals we can capture, including voice tone, for example, Mm
1: -hmm. uh,
0: can allow us to start getting more objective assessments related to this field. So it's changing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think the other thing to your point about friction, it's it's also important to know that even if medicine was moving at a less packed pace and there was a little bit more time to try out new things, you don't want your clinicians to be experimentalist all the time. Um, medicine is conservative because we don't want to have make mistakes. And there's also the liability issue for, for places too. So mm. it's an inherently conservative system that changes very slowly. So it doesn't mean we can't bring in new technologies, we are, um, but you know the expression, the, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. It'll be the early adopters that will start with uh, uh, this next generation of, of uh, powerful tools. And there already are a large number of pioneering clinics and, and healthcare networks that are embracing the use of VR to address some very difficult problems that we often don't have the right t- tools to do. But it will take time for uh, the conservative system of healthcare to, to adopt this. But that's okay, we, we can, we can um, move forward and, and just keep, keep, keep improving the products um, uh, as, we, as we roll them out. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. I mean, you're, I mean, you're talking about like lights going on in the city at night, right? They don't all go on at the same time. They all, and then eventually at some point it's completely dark and all the lights are on. So in that, in that same respect, uh, technology being distributed outwards, um, just depending on, you know, more aggressive early adopters or, or whatnot. That that absolutely makes sense. The one, the one thing I was going to uh, push back on is you're right, 100%. If I hooked up all these different biofeedback sensors, I would get amazing data to prove that's effective. But then none of the clinicians or doctors are ever going to want to use it because it's going to take an hour to set up. And that, that that friction of show me it's effective, but I don't want to do anything for it seems to be that challenging point of that thing. The eyes gazing, the jerking, things like that I can absolutely see. But as soon as you start adding all the things, I'm just I'm just picturing oh my Bluetooth yeah. isn't seeing up, my audio is not working.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, yes, and it becomes a matter of iterative design. That mm-hmm. you know you you um, you design, you understand where people have had problems using it, and you you design to make it more bulletproof. And, uh, yeah. uh, and ideally, you design before you start building. Uh, it's, it's like anything. But as you know, it's not always done. Yeah. It's not always easy. I, I want to get back to one of your other questions, though. Yeah. Uh, the, the, when we were talking about why um, VR is so effective, um, mm-hmm. one other powerful tools we have is the power of, uh, of leveraging the mirror neuron systems in our brain. Uh, The mirror neuron systems in our brain are the the circuits in our brain that allow us to recognize emotional states in others. In in a way, it's mind reading. I can look at your face uh, or your body language or listen to your voice tone or listen to what you do, and I can say, oh, Dylan is feeling this way, or maybe he's thinking this way, or this is what, you know, I can make extrapolations, which are actually pretty accurate. Um, Some people are more skilled at others. And we can do that, we can leverage that uh, part of our brain that, that recognizes these signals and use it in a virtual environment to help change ourselves. And we mm-hmm. do that by creating um, an avatar, for example, of our future self. And we, there's a process we can go through that uh, Jeremy Bailenson at the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab has helped pioneer, um, where we connect with the avatar of our future self and it involves seeing your future self you when you move he or she moves you you connect and then changes in your behavior can change the happiness coefficient or the appearance of your future self so all once you see the effects of your choices that if you Mm -hmm. don't exercise if you um don't sleep, if you uh, take too much of substance of, of abuse, to use that term, uh, if you uh, uh, aren't making good food choices or whatever you can see, instead of waiting a month or two to see the effects, you can see them re- immediately reflected in your avatar. And that's a very powerful thing to realize that uh, yeah. to close that loop of immediate feedback, because we're not very good at, we discount the future a lot which
1: yeah yeah there's this weird there's this weird situation where there's some sort of cognitive dissonance between us and our future selves there's this disconnect that we have that we're constantly kicking the can down the thing and for the immediate pleasure the immediate gratification for the immediate survival pattern whatever that thing might be for that moment you then you then pony up the uh the the tax bill uh to your future self down the line and what I love about that connecting with your future self is that it, that creates that it creates that instant connection to where, as you put that cheeseburger in your mouth, you can see the character get larger. <laughs> yeah. And I can I can see or, that being a very powerful system. Or when you
0: or when you uh, use supernatural to exercise, you see your avatar gets uh, buffer. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, and yeah, I think the other uh, powerful thing that we can do in virtual environments is that we can evoke negative experiences too. It doesn't always have to be powerful experiences. Now, why would you do that? Well, if you want to help someone who is dealing with chronic pain, or if you want to help someone who has had a traumatic experience or is is grappling with a fear of heights or a fear of flying, you need to teach them the skills to manage that state. Uh, But you can't just say, hey, imagine the most painful thing that's ever happened to you, or imagine Uh, the thing that you fear the most, your brain won't go there. But Mm -hmm. with a virtual environment and under proper clinical supervision, we can do exposure therapy in a very gradual way. And we can teach people how to take maybe what's a learned reaction to a trigger. And we can teach them to, to have a different perspective on it and to react a different way by habituating the response to the learned fear response. So it's a powerful thing that we can't do with just our imaginations we need to leverage the ability for us to to create scenarios and virtual environments that people can and same principle applies for social anxiety disorder you can practice that first day of school or or standing up to uh, uh, you know to give a speech in public uh, same thing applies to helping people who are dealing with addictions who need to practice what we call refusal skills or learn situational confidence so that maybe they've decided they want to stop smoking or they want to stop drinking as much, but they go into a party and they people, or other people are smoking and drinking. You need to practice how to respond to that. And you, you can't do it just using your brain and your imagination. You need to actually evoke those cravings in order to practice getting on top of them yeah
1: it's one thing to say oh i've got it It, it, it's it's weird that we have this weird disconnect with we have a we have a poor way of being able to judge the way we make our decision patterns when we're in a different mental and cognitive state and so you're in one situation like oh i can totally figure that out but then when you get put in that state you know it's like try to solve a problem when you're depressed right try to try to actually change something about yourself when you have low energy or, or whatever things might be but we have a hard time Understanding the type of decisions we would make until we actually are exposed to not only the situation but also the mental uh, and cognitive states about that. And so you're saying that by by actually exposing them to those types of environments, you can't just base on what you think you would do, but you actually have real data on what you would do, being exposed to this virtual representation um, of what I would call the cave you fear the
0: most. You can practice and um, and practice in a situ- in a situational sit- mm. situation where you actually have the cravings that you're trying to get on top of or the mood state that you're trying to master uh, mm. instead of just pretending uh, that, you know, that how you're going to handle a situation. And you're absolutely right. Uh, if you're in an anxious situation or a complex situation, it's very hard to you fall back on you know your your learned responses as opposed to the new responses you're trying to learn.
1: Yeah, well, oh, it's what allowed you to survive so far. It's got that whole, you know, uh, Bush is rustling, must be a tiger, you just start running down the street, you know, uh, so with that, like, what are your thoughts around social VR and its implications on mental health? I mean, we're starting to get more into the social VR space. We're starting at the rise of social VR and social media and all that. How do you think it's going to have the effects on, on the mental health industry?
0: Well, I think um, people are very social animals. and I think mm-hmm. if we can create um, leveraging technology to, to harness the power of that, uh, for some people what's motivating for them to work to get on top of their challenges is the feeling of connectivity with, with a clinician who cares or with a friend who cares to go down the journey together to, uh, to maybe, you, maybe, you're, uh, maybe you're trying to recover from a stroke or maybe you are trying to uh, address, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 a physical challenge that you have, a disability, doing that with a community is so much easier. Now, the tr- challenges in virtual environments right now, and I think it's one of the problems that we'll eventually get over, but most virtual environments are sort of boring when it comes to social. I find most of them are you're there with other things, not other people. And if other people are there, uh, they look like robots. They don't have the rich facial expressions, body language. Uh, you might get some emotional content information about how they're doing from their voice tone. Uh, but um, there's so much in our gestures. There's so much in our facial expressions that communicates our emotional state and bonds us together. And it's now, of course, it's always been, you know, when texting and uh, typing, um, you know, it doesn't have that. And if we're zooming and doing video conferencing, we get it, but we also get too much of it. Uh, so we mm-hmm. get fatigued uh, trying to pay attention to all those nonverbal communications straight in your face. So yeah. I think virtual environments are a good um, uh, meeting spot if we can start getting facial expressions, body language. Uh, complex movements um, and not just our upper torso, the whole body. So, uh, but we'll get there, we'll get there. Yeah.
1: It's, it's, it's a bandwidth issue, right? So they said like uh, uh, photos worth a thousand words, a thousand photos makes a video, a thousand videos make a VR experience, but still we're limited in the amount of bandwidth that's being exchanged. Like you in VR, it's very difficult if I roll my eyes or if I do any of those other types of things, you, you get fidgety with my hands there's, we're not getting the full richness of a bandwidth experience for people to be able to have that social interaction where they can pick up in the cues. You can see my hands wave around like an Italian and just sit and talk about these types of things. So,
0: um, yeah, it's, it's that, but, and I think with 5G and, uh, edge computing, we'll be able to get beyond some of that and do local yeah. rendering, um, cloud-based real-time, uh, rendering of, uh, virtual environments, but it's, we also—it's not just the that—it's also modeling our avatars to have the right inverse kinematics for movement. Uh, mm-hmm. To our avatars look like robots, and until we can get in the rich facial expressions and all the micro movements and and things like that, it, they're going to they're going to seem creepy or not emotive. Yeah. And so that's something that our designers and our engineers will eventually solve. But until we do, it's it's, it's a challenge. That being said. You're absolutely right. There's a, a great power in in social, and that's that's what we see in the in the digital health arena. Using apps and screen-based things, the ones that are the most effective are the ones where there's a connection between people.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are the ones that help each other get better and level up and get in those spaces. So, what do you what do you see as like a five-year time horizon on on the future of medical uh virtual reality technology? Where do you see it as? What's your what's your Elon Muskian future of what's possible?
0: Oh boy. Well, as you you know, I got involved in virtual reality technology back in the late 80s. And back in the day, we always said in five years, uh, it's going to be like this. And we honestly felt that things were just really going to blast off uh, over optimistically. And maybe we need to be overly optimistic if we're going to hang in there as long as we did. Uh, But my colleagues and I were overly optimistic. Uh, That that being said, um, I think in five years, you know, what we're seeing right now is some very wonderful clinical applications and also some wonderful health and wellness applications that are available right now that make a big difference for some very difficult um, problems in healthcare and in health and wellness. But they're not out there in as the usual and customary. They're being used by the pioneering hospital networks, the pioneering clinicians, uh, the pioneering individuals who are embracing technology so in five years i think what we'll see is more i, I think there are some large healthcare networks that are conducting uh, research studies and investing in vr technology because they think if properly deployed it will improve our healthcare and thus improve their long-term costs i think having the payers to use that expression be involved uh, is going to make a big difference and and i don't think it'll take five years i think um i think we'll start seeing reimbursement for some of these clinical procedures, Um, more reimbursement, we already have some. You know, COVID for all its horribleness has also put a lot of wind in the sails of telemedicine and virtual environments are part of that digital healthcare revolution that has been propelled forward by our need to find other ways to provide healthcare. So I, I think we will see Um, I'll try and be cautious here in what I'm saying. I think what we'll see is what has already now been validated and demonstrated as being very powerful ways to treat brain injuries and stroke, very powerful ways to help people on the autism spectrum learn social skills, very powerful ways to help people with post-traumatic stress uh, uh, get on top of uh, some of their triggers and anxieties. I think we'll start seeing that moving from um, the elite uh, uh, teaching hospitals and medical centers and pioneering places to to, to the, more to the rank and file and I, I think we'll start seeing pharma companies using virtual environments part of their drug testing um, routines and uh, coming up with more objective measurements uh, by especially in behavioral medicine and CNS. I think we'll start seeing a lot more tele medicine, provided over a virtual environments. So uh, I, I think that's about as, as overly optimistic as I should be on this uh, conversation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> gonna
1: put a flag in to say, he said it here. Everybody go go get your VR tickets. Uh, one thing you talked about, I think it was really interesting, so you're right. I mean, there, it, there's a trickle down effect of, of, of money, right? It's, so it's military military, big, giant businesses, and possibly the medical companies that can afford it, pharmaceuticals, right? They all have the capital to be able to afford this, Um, but a lot of this innovation that's happening in the medical space, I mean, a lot of the innovators, in order to get up into those areas, it's a challenge. It's a financial challenge for them to get in, to be able to actually get it to a point where it's effective, where it's safe, where it's validated what recommendations would you recommend uh, for people that want to do like get, get funding for stuff like this people that want that maybe can't bankroll this whole thing because as you know it's it, VR is expensive medical testing is expensive so you're gonna take those two things and put them together and have a slow roll on that what how do people how do the people be able to financially support or fund these types of mechanisms
0: well let, let me give three potential um, pathways to, to go mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe four. Um, well, first of all, I think it's getting better. Uh, finally, some of the larger uh, titans in the industry are jumping in. Uh, uh, you know, Penumbra, for example, is a public medical device company that has made a substantial uh, commitment to um, medical VR. Um, and that's gonna be an example to the investors that if If a company has a product that might fit on the Penumbra platform, for example, or might stand alone and have the, you know, be able to leverage the momentum that a a public company can make happen in the medical arena, uh, it's just going to open doors. And some of the larger pharma companies are teaming with VR companies to do combination therapy of their medications with the power of virtual environments. So having these... Pharma companies and medical device companies come in will give greater comfort to the investors that there's a there's a pathway for acquisition or exit. Therefore, they might make some money off of this. Um, I think also uh, the other reason to to be optimistic. And so to, to answer your question of what can a uh, early stage company do is find partners uh, for, or go to your investors and point to. The fact that there's a potential group that could acquire you later on if you if you continue to do great work, um, I think the other thing to keep in mind is the tech titans have a vested interest in b- building out the enterprise, and one of the biggest enterprises in our our world is medicine. I think it's about twenty percent of uh, the U.S. economy. So Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, uh, Sony. Um, uh, there's all They all have an interest in seeing their technology applied to the medical vertical, and uh, they might be able to help uh, uh, with investments or facilitations there. Uh, I think also medicine is changing. It's not just being done at a hospital or clinic, uh, whereas there's a lot of applications in the health and wellness arena. And there's also groups like Walmart or Amazon sending up their own healthcare clinics and investing in their own healthcare networks. So it's not just... The way it used to be, and so there's a, there's a, there's the continents are colliding. Um, health mm-hmm. and wellness is no longer a separate zone from clinical care, and um, telemedicine is surging because of COVID. So, I, I, to answer your question about where to get money, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. just pay attention to where the big guys have a vested interest in seeing you develop something on their platform to help them sell more of their expensive gadgets that they've invested a lot of money into developing. Uh, the other place, of course, is um, um, government-funded uh, grants and research. That our, our government and other governments have a vested interest in improving population health. Mm-hmm. And um, the venture groups, once they see a few exits, which they will see, uh, there's been a significant amount of investment recently from different um, venture groups. Uh, they'll be investing in startups um, more than they have before. So it's, there's a couple of pathways to get funding to bring out cool stuff in medicine.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, you, you highlighted a number of ways, but the, the, the general punchline is find big partners that what you do will help benefit them. Reach out to them and say, look, if we put this on your platform, we can help you sell more widgets, whatever those widgets might be. So let's work together
0: or or reduce or reduce your costs uh, a lot of hospitals and clinical networks have innovation officers who are searching for ways to improve their efficiency and again it's you have to validate you have to work with them but they they will often be a source of funding and collaboration to help make that happen
1: that's awesome that's great uh, what do you in terms of uh what advice would you give to you know companies that are looking to get in this space Uh, Young up-and-comers in the space that are that want to get started, but they don't know how you know What would what would be some advice to you for people that are looking to to innovate in the space that have a passion they're like, I want to use VR for good, and I want to get into this space, but I don't, I don't know anything about this. I just bought this headset, and it's like Nintendo Christmas. Kids, you don't know about Nintendo, but back in the day, when you get a Nintendo, it was really awesome, and then your mind would get blown, and you'd hug it. So there's going to be a young kid whose mind got blown, who hugs the, who hugs his Oculus Quest headset, who wants to bring it into for some good. What advice would you give uh, to someone like that, that's uh, up and coming in the space?
0: Well, I think to really get into, involved in this, it, it's a team effort. You have to find your partners to do it, and um, it's more. It you know, often I'll see groups that have they're strong. They come from the technology arena. They understand sensors and computers, or they come from the the gaming arena. and They understand how to promote adherence to get people to come back and enjoy the what they're what they're doing, and they create very beautiful uh, environments. Or I see people that come from the clinical arena who understand the problems uh, very well and what's needed i've seen groups where they put together a team of people from all those communities mm. often what's missing is someone who understands the business of healthcare. um you know there's a if we created it, it will they will buy it attitude and the reality is as we've as we've discussed there's there's a lot of friction in the healthcare ecosystem that you need to understand. And in a way you need to reverse engineer from that. You need to understand what you think will make a difference, how it will actually, you need to go to clinics or go to someone's home if you're developing something for home use with a stopwatch and well you can do it on your cell phone now and you don't need to use a, a watch a stopwatch but uh, you need to you need to time you need to study you need to understand uh what what uh, what the needs are how technology can make a difference and then you just have to have good design and that's often something else that people don't invest heavily enough in is that they they think if if you build it uh, and it does the job that's enough but i think in order to be in today's world, it's got to it's really have the right ergonomics to it. It's got to it's work fast. It's got to work beautifully. It's got to make sense to, you know, the reports have to look like they fit into the hospital infrastructure or, or it's, that's often what's missing too. So it's, mm-hmm. the, the answer is there's it's, it's a, medicine is very rewarding both in terms of personal um, feelings of making a big difference to help people and it's also very high margins, but there's some barriers of entry that are a little more complex than other arenas. And if you can master those, uh, um, you you can you can really do something you're proud of and that that can be you know financially rewarding. I guess mm-hmm. the other barrier is uh, understanding the regulatory environment. Uh, again, not if you're selling something for personal health and wellness, but again, uh, some some of the most important things are helping address some. Difficult clinical problems, and you need to you need to be prepared to to get involved with understanding what the the safety guidelines and the regulatory guidelines are, and the patient privacy guidelines are. So there's there's some legal engineering and regulatory engineering that you need to prepare to do. But guess what? There's out there's people out there who understand that that can help you and can either advise your team or be part of your team.
1: Yeah, that's great. So it depends on. So look at what team you're part of, and you understand what gaps you have. If you're if you're great at art, you might be bad at code. you will be great at code, you might be bad at design. Great at design, might be bad at the industry. So it all depends about understanding what are your strengths, what are your gaps, and then there's a couple of areas that generally get ignored, uh, which is the 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 technical implementation uh, from infrastructure to legal to rollout to all of that, and then you know with that comes the thing that no one wants to look at, which is design. Which is the unfun part of any process of getting started? Um, looking at the design process, do you have a recommendation? Because design is this amorphous thing. A design is a is on the napkin, draw a smiley face with an arrow with a door, a napkin, or 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 it could be a hundred and fifty page um, technical design document. Um, so there's a whole range of that. Do you have a system or a framework or a recommendation? For people that are starting the design process, how how do you how do you move through those stages of design before you actually um, code that thing up or build that product?
0: You you study and you take good notes and you get creative people who've done it before to to look over your shoulder and give you advice. Uh, I I I think you know it's a it's the fun part is the creative part. Um, but there are also there's also a process that has evolved that that uh, allows you to uh, pay attention to you know what's needed and the challenge I think as we're coming up with new systems is understanding the affordances that VR brings and matching it correctly to the problem and that's where you need to start if you just jump in uh, you're going to make a mistake uh, often people think oh I'll, I'll throw VR at that problem. And the, the reality is that sometimes VR can make all the difference and allow you to do something that you otherwise could not do or could not do well. Uh, and other times, it just doesn't make any sense at all to, to do it with VR. There's other, other ways, new thinking new designs and uh, storytelling can make a difference, but not necessarily with an HMD. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a matter of thinking you know, thinking before you you code and, and build or solder or or market. Uh,
1: spoken like a, a, a true VR veteran, as uh, the first thing. made it lots came, of mistakes. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it is the is the why do this in VR in the first place? <laughs> there is, you have that the the commentary because most people that try out VR the mind gets blown. They're like, I could do anything, and, but the question is, should you? Does it make sense? And there is Right Places, Right Time that we've talked, we talked about several examples right now. But the one question is, is, can it be done without VR? Then maybe it should be done without VR. Um, but people get very emotionally attached, especially when it's their first idea, their second project, their third thing. There's a bit of an identity attachment to the thing that they're making versus someone who's made a lot of them. Uh, you're, you're on this side for me. But have made a lot of the experiences. Um, you, you you feel like there's less of an identity. How, how can you tell is... Um, how can you tell if something is off track? How do, you, how do you validate the idea? How do you prove out that the problem, like what you're doing is effective? Someone had a comment, we'll address that in a second. But first I'd like you to answer that, that, that question is, how can you tell if, if what you're building is actually solving the problem? How can you tell if you need to veer, pivot, or, or, or uh, pour some gasoline and, and set the whole thing on fire?
0: Well, I, I, there's a couple ways. Um, one is to um, study the ecosystem that you're perturbing before you go in and perturb it, and that can be done by um, putting together key opinion leaders and interviewing them. It can be done by getting um, focus groups together uh, and uh, uh, rolling out, even if they're just sketches of what you'd like to do, and say, does this make sense? And is it really your biggest problem? Um, you know, and and what and then just constantly, it's an iterative process, go back and make sure you're still on track. So it's a matter of studying um, before you launch and design and build. Um, And uh, I would also pay attention to the shipwrecks. Uh, There's enough other people over the last three decades who have been applying VR to clinical problems, and many people don't appreciate that, that we've been at this for a while. Sure, the equipment was more expensive and unwieldy, but there's been work done on exploring where VR can be used and where it's effective and where it's not as effective. And there's a library of research publications about that. Uh, I would look at companies that have started and failed and figure out why. I would look at research studies that have shown where it does work and where it doesn't work rather than just uh, start start building. So survey the landscape, interview the natives, uh, uh, build some, uh, wire diagrams and, and collect information. And it's just, it, you know, it's not magic, but you do need to, you do need to do it or else you're going to have a, a mess.
1: I like, I like the concept of studying shipwrecks and to look at it. Cause so many people look at the, oh we'll be the next beat Saber, We'll be the next Pokemon go. And it's just the only context that they have versus looking at, you know, what is actually out there and what's crash and burn. Cause you need a lot of lessons from that someone someone made a comment and i'll just bring it up here let's see how long this thing can get when speaking about the complexity of creating medical extended reality it is important to recognize that unlike any other field healthcare is evidence-based which is great for defining problem space. i totally agree and what about pain talk to me about the level of pain you're experiencing talk to me about those things there's this, the, you're right there are certain problems that are identifiable and there's certain ones that are subjective based as well which is hard to identify those more amorphous things. It's like pain, like feelings and sensations. Walter, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, um, the, the person who made that com- comment is, is absolutely right. Um, one, one, of the, one of the things that is uh, great about uh, developing a medical product is that it, there's a extensive data set already of, of how different clinical interventions are being used and their effectiveness And if you innovate, you can see how, if you take the trouble to measure and design good studies, uh, you can see how your innovations improve um, the long-term outcomes in healthcare. It's it's an area where we have a library of of data. And if you work with um, somebody who has an electronic medical record and and a large data set of people with similar indications and similar results using the usual and customary, you can compare that being said keep in mind we're also innovating we're coming up with ways to take what is subjective and might be viewed as very noisy data because it's been self-reported or uh, casual observations and now we can turn Mm -hmm. into things where we actually measure movement we're actually measuring attitudes and eye gaze and behavior in a virtual environment as opposed to just saying how are you feeling and so i think our our the resolution of our evidence and our data is going to start getting better. And uh, mm-hmm. that's both an opportunity, it's also a challenge. We have to come up with new ways to score things and name things. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's um, but we're getting there.
1: Yeah, part of being in the pioneering space, it's all wild, wild west, and there's no continuity of, of, of definitions. Um, and uh, for the Facebook user, I'm sorry, I don't have your name. I think you have to sign in, do a thing. I don't know give Facebook something but I can't see your name so I couldn't call out who that was um, but the uh, but the the difference um, one thing you're, you're touching on right there and one thing I want, I want to talk about real quick before the Alex there's another uh, uh, comment coming in here but one of the questions we're going into that is what what about the VR technology and all this scares you what is what is a concern you have for the technology coming up?
0: Good question. I'm, I'm so glad that was asked. Um, well, uh, I'm obviously very enthusiastic about the, the potential upside of what we can do with, with technology. I, I do think also though, that uh, as we get better at capturing information that reflects people's cognitive states or their mood states, that I think within the clinical ecosystem, uh, we have ways of uh, protecting that information they're not perfect but they're there but the same algorithms the same sensing technology will probably also be used outside of the clinical environment and migrate there mm-hmm. and i'm worried that someone for example will uh, build into some multi-user online gaming environments ways of identifying someone's whether someone's depressed what their level of anxiety is or how how well do they handle emotional challenges and that this information, because it's not collected in the clinical environment, will be um, put into uh, a file someplace and somebody will apply for employment and the employer will have access to a database and they'll say, aha, this person is potentially a problem uh, based on their behavior in some online game they played 10 years ago and, wow. and some algorithms. So I'm worried that the paradigms that we're pioneering in healthcare that will help us do some amazing things will also be applied outside of the healthcare environment or even in the healthcare environment uh, inappropriately. Another concern I have is we start using machine learning and algorithms to do a diagnosis. If we're not super careful, we're gonna bake in our biases to that. And uh, that especially since if we're referring to already collected data sets, which already have biases built into them. Uh, I guess the third concern I have, I'm sorry to be listing all these concerns, but- the No, it's great. Yeah. I'm actually, it's a great question. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, But the other concern is uh, we don't know uh, the effect of spending a lot of time in the virtual environment on the developing brain. Uh, There's a disconnect between, uh, I mean, we're fooling the vestibular ocular system by putting our screens very close to our eyes. Uh, You know, it's not really, you know, there's an accommodation based on distance that we're not necessarily able to, to, you know. So uh, I'm worried about if, if, Children whose parents work three jobs and they're they're at home and they spend X number of hours in a virtual environment, and we don't know the effect on the evolving visual system uh, in youngsters, or really on adults either. I'm not really that worried about it because I sort of feel that it's like you get in your car and you 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 get in sort of your you get your sea legs for driving like this, and you've learned that. But when you're not in the car. Yeah, you're, you're not going like this when you're trying to move someplace. So, I think we'll have some sort of state induced uh, understanding of the difference between virtual environments and non virtual environments, and that our brains will sort of adapt to that. But that's my mm. optimistic nature. The reality is we don't know, and yeah. we should.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the, the car example reminds me of anytime you put a dog in a car and they, they're trying to adjust to the environment as they're moving around, they don't They have no idea. If, of predicting the the turning patterns where we just kind of intuitively lean into the turns and all that that makes makes a ton of sense and it's also frightening what you're talking about if you're playing some sort of online gaming um situation and you get labeled as depressed get labeled as whatever the thing might be and, and then that data gets shared and sold and whatnot and then and then you're forever you know, you know, labeled as stinky or whatever that, whatever that terminology is. It reminds me of the old rap sheet back in, back in the day. It's like, oh, if you're tardy, that's going to go on your permanent record. And that permanent record was this giant fear monger thing of I'm going to try to control you through fear. Um, so, but this is, this is even worse because it's, it, it never allows people to express themselves. And that's one thing I'd love to talk to you about is, you know, you want people to express themselves. To to uh, share their, their feelings, their emotions, their what not to do that. But at the same time, there's all this fear and judgment around going into a permanent record about being judged about about doing those things. And also, like, you know, uh, different medical institutions wanting to protect themselves. So how do you get people to open up and, and, and share that stuff without it being attached to something that that doesn't that has a negative reper- repercussions on it? Does that, does that make sense?
0: yeah i think there's two things that we can do one Mm -hmm. is we can put guardrails where we come up with best practices and rules and laws that can you know say this is this is what needs to happen to protect uh, the public good uh and individual privacy and do our best job to enforce those and and again i think in the healthcare environment we're we're better than in many other environments but not always perfect However, I, I also think we can um, it's a trade-off. Often people will trade, um, you know, uh, information for improved value. If I'm using a virtual reality product that helps with um, uh, get over a problem with like chronic pain or recover from my stroke, and if there's a risk that some of my information might be leak out, maybe as part of a clinical trial and uh, I, I often as long as i know what the risks are taking and what the benefit is and that's the other thing that needs to be designed into these products is to make sure that both on an immediate level but also on a global level there's benefit and yeah. uh, you know people will often say sure i'm in i, I will i will uh, i will do this even though it's new and even though it's unproven uh, but I want to make sure there's benefits for me and I want to make sure there's benefits for society. And that's often the trade-off we, we, we have to make. Yeah.
1: One thing that was really interesting that speaking, um, I was thinking about the things that terrify me, I came across at like 3am on a subreddit, um, which was a, a title.
0: You know, Next. we have, we have treatment for things that terrify you, Dylan. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: simulate me waking up at 3 in the morning, going to going to subreddit, reading terrifying lines about stuff. said
0: We'll use aversion therapy in this <laughs> game. <laughs>
1: yeah, Thank <they> you. <do> appreciate <laughs> that. I, I need a little lecture that just shocks me every time I tries, I hit the Reddit button. Um, it was a title that said, ex-head of Oculus Research Labs creates AR VR telepathy. And so what this was is, I don't know if you're familiar with Mary Lou Jepson.
0: Yeah, I, I know uh, her. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I, I was watching that and, and, and the thing she was talking about how they had the toggleable AR VR glasses, right? From virtual reality, augmented and back. But then she took an array of camera sensors and put them inside a head, a helmet, basically making a functional MRI scanner uh, that is, you know, one one thousandth the size and cost and all that stuff that fits in your head. And she was talking about how, we can, you know, wearing it for a couple of hours, you can kind of get some insights. But wearing that for thousands of hours and knowing what you look at, looking, knowing what you're doing, and knowing what you're seeing, I mean, this this type of technology, seemingly, if it's like any other thing, um, in the next five years, will be out or 20 or 25. But it's going to come out with these functional MRI scanners and this AR VR technology. Um, not let alone the whole Elon Musk plug your plug your head. Into the chip, and then use a Bluetooth connection to open up your app, which is a thing. Um, what is your thoughts around the that integrated MRI and VR AR technology? Um, good, bad, pros, cons, all of that. What are your What are your general thoughts on it?
0: Well, it's like any technology that's evolving; it it can and will be used to do things that aren't cool, and there's also the reason it's evolving is hopefully to do good. And I think a good defense is an offense. Let's just go in and leverage this to do amazingly good things. And, you know, with an aging population, we need to come up with, uh, we've got a big problem that's just 20 years down the road, 10 years down the road. It's not a matter of theory, it's just the math. Uh, With so many people that are living into their 90s, um, with the boomers getting up there, and two out of every seven of us are going to have neurodementia um you know there's with other concomitants it's going to be very expensive and uncomfortable if you happen to be in that age group we need to be aggressive about finding out solutions that can improve our healthcare system and we need to start now so when i hear about innovations like what mary lou jepson is doing i i think fantastic now about the concern about the downside um i think again um and there's other technologies emerging too, like fNIRS, which is a way to uh, relatively inexpensively get a measurement of um, the activities of the of the frontal cortex without uh, having to be in an, an imaging machine. Um, mm. There's a lot of cool stuff coming out that also could be um, scary, just like they felt about the telephone. Uh, mm. I I do think what we should do is just make sure we Leverage it for good things, and come up with some guidelines, rules, best practices, indices, standards, um, comic book code, whatever it is, to make sure that we, we we put the guardrails up to protect about the potential downside, and and that's as a culture that's hopefully what we've already done, always done. So hopefully not too late in this case, uh, and I and I think that I think the people who are developing it can be can come up with their own best practices and guidelines too and shame those people who get outside of it but there is there is uh, there are organizations out there that are aggressively working to come up with a code of uh, of of ethics and a code of of standards for uh, safety in in the virtual environments and uh I think you should bring them onto your show, Dylan, and have them have a chance to, to talk about it.
1: I'll say it. I love the term comic book code. Um, and, uh, you know, right, because they're, I mean, comic books are the, are the modern day um, pantheons of, of our culture that we look to and idolize and, you know, tell stories about and, and pay homage to. I think that's incredible. With that in mind, what is what is your truth set you live by? Like what are your like what is the game that you play? What is the truth that you live by? What is your what is your own personal comic book code? You've been, you spent a lot of time in this space and you talked about doing more good than ill. Um, what what is that I, for you?
0: I have a hunch that this is one of those questions that when I answer about ten minutes after this interview is over, I'll say, you know, I should have said that. You know? So I'll I'll Come I'll give back you back on. Yeah. Um uh, <laughs> well you know i'm tempted to say some you know titular responses like first do no harm or something like that but uh, yeah. the reality is uh, i think that we need to for me for me the the, the 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 what makes me happy and i think makes a contribution to the world is harnessing uh, creativity harnessing knowledge harnessing uh energy to, to do things right, and teaming with other people the same um, um, goals to make stuff we're proud of. So I, I always try and optimize for something that not only will I be proud of, but what will my colleagues be proud of. And that often is, you know, it's, it's an exercise to do that. So I, I guess I can't really, I mean, I'm, I know I'll think of things later that are, are part of my yeah. code, but um, to me, it's... Um, we we got to move fast there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of people who need what we know how to do out there but we can't do it alone it it it's it's uh, we need uh, really great teams to to make a difference here and so we've got to put our egos aside and just find ways to 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 work with our colleagues our our even our, even our competitors i to be honest with you, I don't think in the area that we're talking about, Dylan, that there is competition per se. There's groups that are fellow travelers. It's much like when the gaming industry was back in the Nintendo days that you talked about, when you know the when we were the early days when we were. We need to create uh, something new here, a new way of doing healthcare, leveraging some amazing technology, and it's anybody else who's doing it, even if they're doing something very similar to us, well, they're helping us move the industry forward. And there's so much work that needs to be done. So I, I think I would put aside any feelings of competition. And that's uh, sort of my, part of my code is I just view everybody as as a colleague.
1: That's awesome. And uh, yeah, yeah, harnessing the creativity energy to do things that we're proud of. And uh, the thought process, and instead of looking at someone as a competition, you say hello fellow fellow traveler welcome that is an amazing uh uh narrative reframe to uh to get rid of those those core belief patterns and i think that's a very powerful statement so uh walter this has been incredible you have gone above and beyond you stayed on um for quite a while to to make sure that we could we could get this going the audio has been fantastic the entire time and uh Walter, fellow traveler, hearts. Uh, thank you, Facebook user. I'd call it your name, but I don't see it. Um, but thank you for that. And uh, I think you you had a good point, too, about Sandhill World and the evidence of why they failed. Um, that's all true. And I think I think Walter hit on some of those points. So um, Walter, is there is there anything else you'd like to let people know about um, before you tell them how they can get a hold of you?
0: Um, well, um, gee. Uh, there's an infinite number of things I'd love to make sure that people know about in in this area because I'm very passionate about it, but um, I I guess uh, to try and come up with one last one, um, you know, you might want to check out the International Virtual Reality Health Association, IVRA. It's It's a group of scientists, engineers, clinicians, business people, uh, everybody in the healthcare ecosystem who's passionate about applying VR technology and AR technology to healthcare—it's uh, a—it's an organization that I think is is doing the right thing and doing it the right way. Um, uh, there's also, uh, um, you know, I I, I don't want to give out uh, too many anagrams, but there's groups that are looking at safety and ethics. If that concerns you, they're they're very findable. Uh, uh, it's it's a community again that's emerging right now, so. We everybody's welcome, and we need everybody's help. So I guess that would be the message: is uh, you know, take take your skills and bring it to this emerging area because there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of fun to be had too.
1: Join us, fellow travelers, on this <laughs> on this journey together.
0: I love yeah, bring, it.
1: And, uh, and, uh, bring some food. How, <laughs> bring snacks. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, do you have any healthy organic pizzas over there? <laughs> the hackathon food of choice. Um, great. And uh, how do they find out more about your work and what
0: you do? Oh, I, I guess just Google my, my name. I think uh, I'm findable because my name is easy to spell. It uh, doesn't have too many consonants in it. Uh, but my, my email address is uh, Walter G mm-hmm. at stanford.edu um and i'm i'm very findable i'm i but you have to please be very patient with me i i it often takes me a while to to, to uh, respond and get back to you but I'll, I'll do my best
1: i i will attest to that he's been very patient very kind and then also i did notice that he was a bit overwhelmed on emails when we first came in so just be kind. He's
0: he's busy, So please don't please don't invite me to join your Slack channel. I, I just oh know. no yeah, yeah, nah, nah. yeah maybe later maybe later but
1: yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well Walter uh, this has been a pleasure thank you so much for your time um, I really appreciate it brother and um, thank and you. Uh, look, look forward to all the good work that you do and uh, I'll see you on the other side
0: yeah let's um, let's keep in touch and we'll we'll do it together um, thank you everybody. All right, bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.